This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Charlotte Lydia Riley about Imperial Island, a history of empire in modern Britain. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is a fantastic book. It's an incredibly important book, obviously, both, uh, I think, in general, but also um, at the kind of historical moment that Britain uh, finds itself and you know as, as the book the clue is in the title you, you know the book goes way beyond um, a British audience and, and really is, is a kind of global text but one of the things that's nice about the book and the way it kind of starts is it locates itself really kind of specifically um, in London and in the bit of London which is new and where, where you live um, and I was fascinated reading that and it, and it kind of prompted a sense that this would be a good kind of first question of like why is this bit of London that you live in a really kind of nice route to understanding the legacy, the complexity, and I guess the kind of inescapability of empire in Britain? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting question, because I I didn't initially start the introduction like this. And I was kind of thinking about a way to draw viewers, uh, draw readers in, sorry, to the like, the main themes of the book, the kind of story I wanted to tell. And um, I live in Newham, and it's one of the most diverse places in the country, one of the most diverse boroughs in London. It's also one of the poorest places in London as well, and one of the, I think, maybe the youngest London borough. Um, the proportion of people under 35 here is is very, very high. Uh, more than 100 languages are spoken in Newham. Um, and I think what's interesting about this as well is that occasionally when the demographic data comes out with like the census and things like this that there'll be kind of quite alarmist news stories about you know boroughs where um you know white people white british people for example are in a minority or something like this but newham has a really long history of diversity this has been a a a place where migrants from the empire and 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 migrants from other places um like eastern europe have lived for a long time um i say in the book that in the 1930s, there's an area of Newham that was known as Draftboard Alley because it was so um, integrated, right? Black and white people were living next door to one another, like the squares on a on a drafts board. Um, and I think it's also interesting because um, it helps us to think about the kind of the politics of a, of a sort of very ordinary 
place in London, which is often also seen as being quite extraordinary. So, you know, people live normal lives in Newham. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's, it's a place with industry, with with culture, and the the Olympic Park is kind of in Newham. Um, the kind of there's obviously schools and shops and everything else, and people live these kind of day to day ordinary lives, which are like irrevocably shaped by the history of imperialism and the ongoing history of imperialism in the city. And I just thought that was a a really good example of the argument I'm trying to make in the book, which is that empire isn't something that you can relegate to like the 19th century. It's something we need to think about in the here and now. And was that kind of sense of, I suppose, the sort of everyday uh, reality of, of empire um, as we sort of live our lives in contemporary Britain, was that something that inspired you to write the book um, or did you have, um, I guess, kind of other inspirations? That was a big part of it. And I think there's quite a few things that went on. So I taught a, um, a special subject that had initially been set up by Elizabeth Beatner at the University of York. I was a, a temporary member of staff at York and I taught her special subject for two years, which was on kind of imperial cultures in Britain in the 19th and 20th century. And, you know, we kind of started, I started by speaking to students about the Mackenzie Porter argument about, you know, has empire really had an impact at home or not? Which is a, a real kind of classic one-two historiographical argument, right? You, you take one side in that argument and Mackenzie and me argue that, like, yes, it has had a very important kind of um, impact on, on Britain and British people. And the new imperial history movement has kind of developed this a lot and has thought about it. And and so there's a kind of scholarly background to this, which I think is worth um, emphasising that has been done a lot for the 19th century. And, and people like Anna Bocking Welch or Liz Buna have written about it more for the 20th century as well. And then I think I was also interested in the kind of political context, um, things like Brexit, um, where empire became something that people were talking about or a kind of nostalgia for empire. And, and then things like, you know, I end the book talking about the Colston statue and, and the Windrush scandal. And both of these things are clearly really tightly related to empire and imperialism and in, a, in ways that we don't always interrogate. So it felt like a, there's like a scholarly background to this and then like a political moment. I mean, that comes through really clearly in the book. Actually, you know, the book is incredibly sort of rich in terms of the scholarship that underpins it. But also it, um, you know, kind of repeatedly uh, speaks to contemporary questions but we will get to that in good uh, time that the book runs um broadly chronologically um uh, from sort of around the time of uh the second world war right the way up to uh the present and we'll kind of dip in i think to um maybe a couple of sort of illustrative um debates uh, and illustrative uh, incidents uh, that you get into to kind of show the story of the imperial island and and i was very taken with Really, and, and I suppose this comes back to both the popular and the historical that you've highlighted. I was really taken with the way that early on in the book you say, well, actually, you know, we probably need to think again about World War Two, partially because we tend not to, in popular culture, see empire's role in World War Two. You know, the kind of, uh, and you talk about this in the book, the um, slightly distorted image of Britain standing alone um, in the European uh, theatre, but actually, you know, there's a kind of imperial story there. But at the same time, we sometimes forget how people living on, you know, the British Isles had views about empire as well. So how, I suppose, does empire uh, force us or allow us to rethink the history of World War II? I think in a, in a, in like a really specific way and then in quite a contextual way as well. So I think in the specific way, you're absolutely right that people fighting for Britain in the Second World War, either coming from the Metropole or coming from the Empire, 
um, you know, often have experience of imperialism through through that fight, right? We have um, people going to fight in, uh, well, people coming to fight from Australia and New Zealand and Canada and from African colonies and from the Caribbean and from India, of course. Um, but we also have people coming from Britain to go to places like North Africa um, or being stationed in places like um, the Far East, for example. And so this kind of connection with the geography of empire becomes clearer. And, and of course, you have people coming from empire to the metropole. So, um, you know, and one example, for example, is the people coming, the men coming from British Honduras, um, who are sent to the highlands of Scotland, because the forestry industry desperately needs manpower. And um, Honduras has a very strong kind of forestry um, industry to it. Um, and this is a real, you know, this is a real kind of shock to to the the Hondurans who are in this like very cold very kind of inhospitable place which is often very kind of hostile to outsiders and so you have that kind of story of mixing and then I think also it's important to think about this because in British culture I think we tend to think about empire as something that happened a really long time ago and the second world war is something that happened quite recently so people often talk about the war you know, baby boomers talk about the war often as if they have direct experience of it um, or as if they kind of lived through it, whereas, you know, baby boomers kind of by definition didn't. They were born after the war, but very few people actually alive in Britain today did live through the Second World War. Um, and empire, on the other hand, is something which, you know, it's pointless bringing up. It happened so long ago. It was so historic. But Britain still, I mean, Britain still has colonies today, but Britain, you know, still had um, colonies well into the 1970s, into the 1980s. So, we've kind of got the chronology backwards on these two things. So I think putting them together actually helps us to understand some things about British culture quite well. I mean, the, the other thing in terms of thinking about things that are uh, seemingly a long time ago, but also, you know, still with us in, in contemporary um, context is another moment of, I suppose, kind of overturning um, popular and uh, historiographical debates, which is around what happens after the Second World War. And again, you know, in, you sort of alluded to this uh, with how maybe kind of baby boomers view uh, the past. But, you know, we have this moment of like the New Jerusalem, the birth of various bits of the welfare state, although they're actually quite kind of old and stuff before uh, the Second World War. But, you know, this kind of moment where the Attlee Labour government comes in um, and we have this very particular kind of British story. But actually, one of the things you do is say, you know, really, we need to think again, both because the Attlee government is an imperial government. You know, there are lots of kind of important things going on with the British Empire um, after the end of the Second World War. But also because we get these kind of uh, really important moments with things like the Empire Windrush um, bringing a particular uh, group of immigrants um, to Britain. So what's the sort of, yeah, I suppose the kind of the challenge and, and, and again, the overturning of a popular narrative um, that the book is doing for that uh, kind of late 1940s period? I think it's interesting because, as you say, there are actually some really key moments in empire that happened under Ali, right? You've got the decolonization of India, you've got Britain's withdrawal from um, Palestine, you've got the arrival of the Empire Windrush. And then for me, my, my PhD was on colonial development under the Attlee government. Um, and so, you know, these big colonial development programs, which are happening under Attlee, where um, Arthur Creech Jones, the colonial secretary, is kind of overseeing these huge projects, um, like the um, uh, Tanganyikan uh, East African groundnut scheme, for example, like these, these big kind of development projects, often, which are often not particularly successful. So there's kind of active imperialism happening in this moment. But 
and we, you know, obviously we kind of acknowledge those things as a culture, but, you know, it's hard to sort of ignore the independence of India, for example. But on the other hand, when, when we think, and maybe particularly when the Labour Party itself thinks back to the Atlee government, what we tend to focus on is the welfare state. And there doesn't, there often isn't much understanding of Atlee as a, a colonial kind of prime minister. And um, it's interesting, I think, because at the time there was this quite, quite a kind of panic that the Labour would come in and kind of on on the right in Britain, there was this fear that the Labour Party would come in and kind of decolonise everything. And actually, they don't do that at all. In fact, colonial development is is has been kind of described by historians as a second colonial occupation. So there's this sense, I think, sometimes there's a bit of a kind of um, break in the narrative between what we would, what we as a country and Labour as a party would like to remember the Atlee government for, which is very much this kind of domestic sorry this very kind of domestic context um and then actually this really important imperial context that's sort of underpinning it all in terms of then i'm trying to think of how to describe it the sort of maybe maybe the most important moment in the story of kind of post-war immigration in in popular consciousness uh, although actually you know the um it's interesting how later on in the 60s, uh, particular by-elections, you know, get on uh, to that kind of same status. But can you tell me the story of the Empire Windrush? Because uh, really, you know, it shapes both, I think, you know, the story of the book, but also it's so important to us in contemporary discourse. Yeah, the the Windrush, I think, is really interesting because obviously it's become such a shorthand and, it, you know, it's not a coincidence that the Windrush scandal was known as the Windrush scandal and actually they settled on it deliberately, right? They were drawing on this this moment of migration from the past that they thought would create a kind of sympathetic narrative. So the Empire Windrush uh, came from, well, the sort of the sort of big picture summary is it comes from Jamaica um, in 1948. It docks at Tilbury Docks in Essex in June. Um, it has a large number of um, people on it, over a thousand people, um, most of them giving a Caribbean country as their last place of residence. Um, it comes to Britain and it's become kind of valorized as this this moment of post-war migration and this moment of post-war migration which is actually like a kind of in many ways depicted by the metropole as a positive right the the front page of the evening standard at the time is welcome home and there's this sense that like um this is a moment where migration from the empire is seen as sort of part of being an empire and it's it's seen almost uncomplicatedly as a good thing though actually um there are some labor mps who are quite angry about this and write to atlee saying we shouldn't we shouldn't actually be encouraging people to come from the empire um and it's become kind of mythical there's this sort of mythical idea we 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 think of the empire windrush as being the first migration from jamaica we think of it as coming from jamaica and we think of it as having kind of young black men on it coming to work in the British economy and actually all of that stuff is is kind of not true so there were two boats that had come from the Caribbean before the Windrush after the Second World War so it's not the first kind of group of migration um it's not only men so of the more than a thousand people on it 292 were female 45 were under 13 so there's quite a lot of family groups traveling on the Windrush um they are there are multiple many different people on it as well so there's people coming from the caribbean and bermuda but there's also a group of polish refugees who have been living in mexico um and have been granted british citizenship there's other people on it as well coming back to britain after work and travel and military service and things like this 
So you can really complicate the narrative of the Windrush, I think, to think about it as like part of a story of migration without being this sort of, it's not really this this moment that people would like to remember. But part of the reason it's remembered like that is the reporting at the time kind of emphasises this. And actually Peter Fryer, who becomes a very um, eminent historian of, of Black British history, he's writing for the Daily Worker at the time and he reports on, he goes and visits the migrants and he goes and sees particularly a group of young men who have been kind of put up um, temporarily given accommodation in some old air raid shelters in Clapham Common. And he kind of writes about them as like young men coming to Britain looking for work after the war. And so his his writing, I think, really kind of constructs this image in Britain of what Windrush was. Um, but it's actually not that. It, it's not that accurate, actually. It's a much more varied and nuanced picture. I mean, th- this isn't quite how the book uh, develops, but I'm interested to kind of hear a bit more about um, what that rethinking of uh, the Windrush means, particularly as we get into the 1950s. One, one of the things I, w- I was really struck by uh, when you're talking about the 1950s is, again, you know, maybe uh, in popular narratives, um, as you've described, this kind of sense of uh, particular uh, parts of, of, of the uh, empire, you know, sending uh, basic people to work. Um, but actually, there's another story uh, going on that's that's really quite different to the story of immigration, which is the story of emigration, you know, people leaving uh, 1950s uh, Britain. And I'm intrigued to, I guess, kind of know both what the kind of legacy of Windrush is into the 1950s, but also uh, that other hidden story of emigration out of Britain. I think it's part of the same um, story in a way, because when we talk about post-war migration in Britain, we almost always imagine kind of people of colour coming to Britain. And it's, that's become the dominant narrative in terms of migration. And it's become a way for people, I think, on, on both the kind of pro and anti-immigrant sides of the argument, like that's how we think about this. And you can think about that post-war moment as a positive, or you can think about it, you know, as people on, on the right tend to do as a negative or as the start of a kind of increasingly negative thing that was happening but we tend to just focus on that element of the story and often also that particular idea right that it's young black men who are coming to work and so again our narratives of what it means to be a good immigrant are often shaped by the well we needed these people right they came and they helped rebuild britain after the war and there isn't that kind of complex idea about well actually we don't need these people to be good good immigrants because these people have the right to live and work in britain as part of the you know after the 1948 act and kind of going down that route of justifying people's migration because of their economic contribution is, you know, actually politically quite problematic and becomes more problematic, I think, as the century goes on. Um, and then we we also, when we talk about that, we never think about immigration. We never talk about the people who are going abroad to places like Kenya and the Rhodesias and then after the war, particularly to places like Australia. So the um, assisted passage scheme, which is set up by the Australian government in 1945, which creates the kind of the £10 POMs, um, it costs £10 in administrative fees and you can you can go to Australia and you can kind of start a new life. And Australia and New Zealand both really kind of want this. And it's interesting because it falls into, particularly in Australia, the, what's called the White Australia policy, which is a very, very racialized, you know, as you can tell by the name, like um, very racist um, immigration policy, which prioritizes migration from people who are ideally kind of anglo white people so people white people from britain or white people from northern europe um and particularly white people from britain are seen as the kind of kith and kin of the white settlers in australia and there's a real push to attract those people at the same time as other people are just being shut out and australia you know throughout the 20th century develops an incredibly aggressive like emigration policy um 
And there's also a kind of, well, I mean, that's a dark side in itself, but there's an even darker side to this, which is that you also have um, things like the children being sent out by charities like Bernardo's who are being sent to Australia, um, often being treated as orphans, um, children who are being taken out of care homes and things like this and sent to Australia and often sent to have very, very unpleasant lives. They often face kind of sexual and physical abuse and um, or, you know, at the very least, kind of very hard labour when they get to Australia. Um, and it's all part of this sort of Commonwealth idea of sending these white settlers out to this place, both so that they're not a drain on the metropole, but also so that they will kind of help further the white British race in these what are thought of as kind of far-flung corners of the globe. Um, so it's it's still very colonial. In the 1940s and 1950s, you're seeing very similar very similar motivations to those that you get in the 19th century with the sort of deportation of prisoners and things like that. In terms of, you know, you use that term, the white British race, this really uh, kind of crystallises actually away from Britain uh, in places like um, Kenya, um, in uh, what was then Southern Rhodesia. Um, and it, it's interesting to know, I, I guess, and, and again, you know, another two-parter for you, like how is sort of British... Um, political kind of media culture talking about these places but also like what's actually going on you know what are the British up to uh, in these places some of which is I guess kind of supportive of the local regimes some of which seemingly is hostile to local regimes but is also kind of quietly supportive as well. Yeah I think it's um, it's interesting because it's obviously very nuanced you know there are people in Britain who know an awful lot about these places there are like diasporic black African people from Kenya from the Rhodesias who are living in Britain who are and also um, displaced black South Africans living in Britain who are also often very knowledgeable about what's happening in Southern Africa, more generally in East Africa. Um, there are kind of activists on the left in Britain that were very critical of white nationalism in places like Kenya and Southern Rhodesia. But then there is also a lot of support for the regimes in those places. And so in Kenya, this is, I'm talking about kind of the late 1940s to 1960 when when you've got the Mau Mau um, the British response to Mau Mau, which is the British response to the kind of anti-colonial uprising. And, and that's covered in really, really lurid um, detail in, in the British media, um, particularly because white British settlers like the Ruck family, for example, find themselves, well, are, are killed by Mau Mau. But what's obviously never covered is the number of, of Kenyan civilians who are being killed by the British state at this point. And in Rhodesia, the... Um, UDI, the Unilateral Declaration of Independence by Ian Smith, is received obviously very critically by anti-colonial activists like the Movement for Colonial Freedom in Britain. But it's, you know, supported by some groups, particularly the Monday Club, um, the far right um, anti-migration, anti-decolonisation sort of wing of the Conservative Party, formed in response to Macmillan's Winds of Change speech. And, you know, the Monday Club send delegations to go and see Smith. Um, they're very supportive of Britain kind of trading with Rhodesia. Um, they're very, you know, they really want to kind of hold on to the idea of Britishness that is being enacted in these places. And I think particularly in, in both Kenya and in Rhodesia, but perhaps particularly in Rhodesia, because it becomes quite isolated internationally from from the UDI to 1980 when um Smith is kind of forced to step down. You get this construction of a particular type of whiteness where the white settlers in Rhodesia really think that they're kind of the last bastion of this, that like Britain is going to the dogs, right? Britain is led by the Labour Party and it's full of kind of long-haired hippies 
and there's no deference anymore and girls are wearing trousers and going to university and people are calling politicians by their first names and I'm not even really uh, exaggerating the things that they found kind of <laughs> distasteful uh, the long-haired boys and short-haired girls of Bloomsbury is a really nice quote by um by one by WPA Robinson who who writes a book about that's a sort of guide to life for people returning from the colonies and um, how to kind of live in Britain in the 60s and so you get this sense that like you know, Rhodesia didn't change. Rhodesia isn't um, isn't treasonous. You know, it's Britain that's changed. Britain has kind of gone away from this and we're kind of hanging on. And, and people within the Monday Club, I think, very much agree with that. And so the Monday Club, for example, is like very um, exercised in this period by the idea of voluntary repatriation for migrants from the colonies, which I think becomes less and less sort of voluntary in the way that it's talked about as the years go on. But, you know, this idea that we could simply send these people back to where they came from and perhaps we could then recapture a sort of Britishness that they think has been has been diluted or disgraced or kind of undone by migration and decolonization. So there's a lot going on, I think, in the 50s and 60s with people seeing the empire as a space sometimes in which actually true Britishness is being performed and and kind of lived and the metropole as a place which is actually precarious and um, under threat and, and being kind of challenged. I guess what, what, one of the things um, that some of this is, is reacting to is a sense of, um, if not exactly victories, but at least um, a struggle for civil rights uh, in Britain in, in the 1960s and, and into the 1970s. And, and again, you know, it was really sort of great in the book to get that sense of engagement where a lot of the contemporary, uh, not just actually academic, um, but, you know, a variety of contemporary histories um, have gone in, in, in recent terms to try and say, you know, this isn't a kind of passive story of uh, a series of immigration acts and then a series of kind of, you know, racist incidents or, or, or whatever. What we've got is actually a story of a civil rights struggle as well. Uh, and I'm intrigued, I guess, to kind of hear about what the civil rights movement was kind of doing, what what's going on with the civil rights movement uh, in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting because it's a it's a constant struggle, right? And it, and it predates the, the 60s and 70s as well. For as long as there's been a, a black diasporic community in Britain there has been anti-colonial activism anti-racist activism and and you know this has often been supported by by white allies and and by organizations like movement for colonial freedom which is set up by Fenner Brockway um, and which is becomes quite an important kind of store it's renamed liberation later um you have the rise of the British black, black power movement in the 1960s led by figures like Darkus Howe for example um, the Universal Coloured People's Association um, which produces a manifesto in 1967 where it like connects racism in the metropole to colonialism and kind of talk, calls for both decolonization and for anti-racist activism um, you've got kind of activism that is quite scholarly so by people like Bernard Coward who writes the um, the book how the west indian child is made subnormal in the british school system so this activism which is aimed at kind of exposing structural inequalities um and exposing kind of the racism inherent in things like schooling and actually that becomes quite a focus and there's quite a lot of surveys and um kind of local groups spring up looking at so there's like another one done um in redbridge for example that looks at um the black people's progressive association in redbridge kind of forms to look at how west indian pupils are being treated in redbridge in in essex and this kind of thing. Um, 
when John Berger won the Booker Prize in 1972, in his speech, he gave a he gave a speech in which he denounced Booker McConnell, who sponsored the Booker Prize for their historic links to slavery and for the fact that they've made their money from slavery and colonial exploitation. And he gave half his prize money to the British Black Panthers. Um, he met Darkus Howe in a pub and handed over the money, I think, in an envelope. And um, this money was used to purchase the headquarters for the group um, and to start a Black Power newspaper. Um, and then you have other kind of groups as well. So the things like the Brixton Black Women's Group, um, the South Hall, South Hall Youth Movement, um, the South Hall Black Sisters, um, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent. So kind of groups which are also responding to other forms of liberation. So women's groups, for example, which are forming because they're finding themselves not represented in the women's liberation movement. They want to specifically kind of work around the intersections between race and gender and things like this. So it's a real kind of there's a real grassroots story here, and it is supported a little by I was I was one of the reviews in the Financial Times kind of said oh she, you know Riley doesn't talk very much about policy and and I don't because it's a book about ordinary people and there is some move to do things like the race relations boards and to try to pass the race relations acts but I think this is a grassroots story fundamentally this is about people on the ground who are kind of fighting for their lives and for their livelihoods and, and trying to resist the racism that they're facing both on a personal level and also you know, from the British state. At the same time, though, uh, I was trying to remember the, the day, you know, Stuart Hall writes um, about the empire striking back um, in, in the 1980s. And, and I think he's writing sort of early 1980s. Uh, and, you know, the sort of payoff to that story that he's writing about is it gets worse. <laughs> so what's going on, I guess, with like literally the empire kind of uh, striking back to become uh, at least, you know, th- I, th- I think, you know, the, the book kind of tells the story really well. Uh, uh, it becomes something that really kind of saturates uh, British culture, not just actually in the 80s, um, but, you know, really, you know, almost kind of um, up to the present day and this kind of sense of, the empire taking its place both as something that the British are like, well, we've forgotten that it was a long time ago, but also it becomes really almost kind of central uh, to British media and culture. So, so um, how does that happen in the eighties? And I guess kind of, how does it carry on to? It's interesting because I think Hall, um, so when Hall writes about the empire striking back, he's writing, I think um, at least partly about the Falklands war, um, which is a really imperial conflict. Again, I was really surprised to see some people, some kind of, uh, some reviews kind of critical of the idea that the Falklands War was an imperial conflict. It's a, it's a war fought by the British Navy to protect a colony. <laughs> it's very hard to think about how else to describe it, really. But um, with the Falklands War comes this like massive outpouring of patriotism um, and this huge, you, you know, kind of at every level. So the Sun has page three girls um, sort of with their you know, with their bare breasts, but talking about how they hope Britain is victorious in the Falklands or whatever. There's this like level of kind of patriotism that's incredible um, and really kind of imperially focused. And then I, I think what's interesting, I talked to my editor about this and we sort of said, you know, at the beginning of the book, you're really writing about, it's really about empire as it's happening. And then you kind of from the second half of the of the book, it, it sort of switches and it becomes about how people react to and think about empire, which is still a, a force. You know, the Falklands are still there. There's still people who live in, in the in the empire today in the British overseas territories. But it becomes much more about the way that empire is thought about and imagined. Um, and so 
like in television shows, for example, in literature, in the way that empire becomes a sort of touchstone for British identity, the way that some people see it as kind of the last moment of British greatness. Um, and also the kind of structural effects it still has on British society. So things like migration and the migration laws and laws around borders are still really framed, I think, around kind of imperial attitudes. And they're really shaped by Britain's experience of empire. Um, and and actually, you know, tied to that, things like the life in the UK test, which tell a particular story about imperialism in the history section of that test, which people have to sort of memorise by rote and are tested on as part of their, <clears throat> sorry, part of their sort of uh, application to become British citizens, you know, there's a sort of state-sponsored historiography which tells a particular story of kind of triumphant imperialism. So I think there are lots of ways you could see empire in British culture today, but I think the 80s is in some way this... In the 1980s chapter, I talk about the Falklands, the anti-apartheid movement, and Live Aid and Band-Aid as being this kind of fulcrum around which society kind of pivots and we end up with this kind of 1990s moment which is theoretically all, you know brand new Britain under Blair in the world, but actually is still kind of really steeped in imperialism. I suppose the, the kind of key thing is, is this sense, and this really, really is, is covered quite, um, you know, it's, it's across several uh, chapters towards the end of the book, is, is the key sense that on the one hand, you've got a story of empire going away for a little bit under Blair and this sort of confident reassertion of a particular kind of uh, global uh, Britishness. But at the same time, by the time you get to the Brexit vote, you know, we've got key political figures literally saying we should have, you know, trading relationships with, you know, former white colonies, uh, as opposed to dealing with the Europeans or, or whatever. And I'm interested to know kind of how you chart that. Like, are there particular sort of uh, moments and like, spoiler alert, obviously 9-11 is really important, but are there particular moments that see reassertions um, of, of empire in uh, contemporary Britain, um, as was, I mean, the 1990s is like 30 years ago, which, which know, is a bit of a work. When yeah. I was writing the book, I was like, well, you know, initially I was going to do the 80s and then and then we were going to finish there. And the conclusion was kind of present day. And my publisher was like, oh, it's a bit of a weird gap, actually, Charlotte, to leave. I think you probably need to kind of cover it. And I was like, well, you can't really write about stuff that's, you know, like just happened. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, this actually these documents are already in the National Archives. Like, this is not this is history. I'm just old. Um, so yeah, how do Labour uh, maybe kind of cope with empire? And I suppose like how do they mess it up to the extent that we get empire being you know really kind of central to Brexit? Yeah, there's some interesting stuff going on there. I can't remember if it made it into the book. The stuff about Diffid, for example, um, which is formed as it's one of the first thing the Blair government does. It sets up the Department for International Development, and this is you know partly part of this is supposed to be like a a new relationship with the developing world, and it's about. Um, I've written elsewhere in a kind of other work about the relationship of international aid and development to the Labour Party and the way that they particularly kind of claim it as a, as a model of thinking about the world. But like as part of as part of DFID, like when they're setting up, there's a big um, there's a big debate in Parliament and people like Una King, um, like a you know, new kind of intake of Labour MPs are saying, look, this this shows that we know that, you know, we can't privatise the problems the world is facing and we need to think about imperial legacies and we need to talk about this history. And then a couple of years later, when Claire Short is is you know in her in her job, she's obviously the first kind of person who's in charge of Diffid. She writes a letter to the the um, 
Zimbabweans saying, you know, we don't have a, this Labour government has no connection to empire. We, we don't feel guilty about imperialism. We're not going to kind of keep supporting you because, um, and actually what she says is, you know, my background is Irish. And as you know, we were colonised, not colonisers. And as far as she's concerned, that's like the end of the story. She doesn't have to make any more. And she, she effectively says, you know, Labour has no connection to imperialism. Uh, which is obviously kind of completely untrue if you look at the at the timeline, but I think it is interesting. And that final chapter of the book, I called Cool Britannia to Brexit Britain. Um, and obviously Cool Britannia is a, is a pun on rule Britannia, which is a very imperial anthem. And, and I think it's the idea of a kind of different sort of empire, a, an empire of cool, right? An empire of like soft power and global reach and Jerry Halliwell in her Union Jack dress and this kind of thing. But actually underpinning it is a real sense of like Britain as an island nation having the right to have this international role and having this reach as a kind of birthright almost. And actually when Labour comes in, they they talk a lot about how they say, oh, you know, at the end of the kind of Conservatives, under the end of Thatcher and under Major, Britain had become isolationist and we want to become global again. But obviously if you're saying that, what you're really saying you know, the last time Britain was global, in inverted commas, was in an imperial moment. So it's a sort of tricky thing to grapple with, I think, for Labour. And then there's definitely, you know, there's this moment of Brexit where I think both Remain and Leave really, really kind of play on imperial um, sympathies and nostalgias in different ways. Obviously, there's the Leave campaign's idea about Brexit. It's, you know, we will go back to the greatness that we once had. Um, we will trade with Kanzuk. We will do all of this stuff again. You know, Britain will be great again without the, the drag of Europe. But the but the Remain campaign as well is, is you know, really framed around, you know, Britain has this kind of soft tolerance of humanitarian internationalism. And again, it's very hard to historicise that claim if you understand Britain as an imperial nation. What, what was humanitarian about Mau Mau? What was humanitarian about the the sort of um, the the way that they were in Malaysia, for example? What was humanitarian about the empire itself? So it's a sort of it's a moment where actually it's very easy to characterise one side of the Brexit debate as imperial, but I think actually it was very fervent on both sides of that narrative. It was very present, um, and then it's kind of come up in different moments as cultural kind of touchstone. Since then, there's a real there's now a real culture war around empire, I think, and about empire's memory in Britain. Yeah, and and the, I mean the book does a lot of that, and you've also uh, done that in in your other work as well, trying to analyse what what's going on. Uh, in terms of contemporary culture wars. And, and I think, you know, we, we've covered like what seems like quite a lot, but actually I just want to stress, you know, the kind of richness of the book and and how much more there is uh, in, in the book in terms of, of both, you know, these dual um, roles for the book to be, you know, a historian's uh, book, but also a, a book that's engaged with uh, popular questions and allowing us to rethink uh, popular histories. And, and that kind of question of like, so... So what do we do <laughs> is, 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 I think, really prescient. And, you know, it was interesting you mentioned this idea of uh, Cool Britan- Britan- Britannia asserting a certain birthright of, uh, of the sense of the British being allowed or expected to be global. And then, you know, both sides of the Brexit debate drawing on imperial tropes. And, and how is it that Britain, I mean, you know, to an extent, nations, it, it, it's tricky to think about uh, what nations could could do in inverted commas, but, but how could Britain be more kind of truthful about its own history? How could it stop being a nation kind of like trapped or um, determined, obsessed with this imperial past? I think, I think that's a really good question. And I don't know if a historian is very 
qualified to answer it. Um, I talk in the book a few times, I kind of say, you know, the way I, I write the introduction and the conclusion, I think I say, you know, we have to reckon with this past in order to kind of understand who we are as a nation. But I, I don't know how, I think that's probably quite optimistic of me in the sense that building national myths and narratives is what nations do, right? And And the empire is such a such a key part of Britain's very recent history, actually, that I think it's too much in a way to expect like politicians in the state to do this. I don't think they're going to. I think this is just what it means for those institutions to be British and for those kind of political parties and things that they're, they're always going to have this as part of their hinterland. I think what we could do as individuals and, and perhaps heritage organizations and things like this is is largely what people are doing in the sense that there's been some really really good work by groups like the national trust um by some not all museums but some museums have really kind of critically started to think about quote unquote decolonizing their heritage and their holdings um and to try to point out to people that this doesn't mean like the destruction of britain's heritage culture or the destruction of britain's cultural legacy it means it's more history right it's adding extra stuff in it's thinking more about these topics um so the work that the national trust did in in the interim report on the connections with slavery and empire like that's good that's a positive thing they should be doing that they should be doing more of that organizations should be doing more of that and the problem is that that was received so in such a hostile way by the by the british press and by british parliament you know oliver dowden when he was culture secretary said that that project would never have any more funding from the ahrc from government from the government because it was kind of effectively because it was kind of anti-british so i think the people who should be doing this work are actually starting to do it and the problem is people are doing it in such a hostile environment at the moment that it's it's both difficult to get this work actually seen um clearly and it's also difficult to encourage people to do it like it's very hard to say to PhD students, yeah, you should be like getting out and talking more about like the imperial legacies of like local buildings or about museum holdings because because the Daily Mail will probably write a story about them and they will get loads of hate mail and be targeted as a hate figure who like hates Britain and trying to do the nation down. So it's a really hard context, I think, in which to propose any kind of historical reimagining um, because the cultural context has become so hostile so violently hostile to this that it's hard to kind of in good faith say we should be doing it even though we should be doing it but you know it's a difficult thing to sort of suggest and what about your own work then um both the moment of having written such an incredible book you know there's a kind of moment where um when you do one of these you know really kind of big uh sort of serious um I suppose, kind of entries into the field that you have a, well, you know, I've kind of settled my accounts with that now and, you know, I'd like to do something else, have a new project. And then also, as you said, you know, the kind of the moment of, I suppose, the kind of the demands or the exhaustion of the practical reality of doing this work. Um, Or actually, if you've got, you know, further thoughts on maybe, um, I wouldn't say a sequel, but, you know, a sort of further bit of work in the same space. So, um obviously part of publishing a book like this is that you get to do lots of stuff like this right you get to do podcasts and do talks and things like that and I'm I'm really looking forward I think the the difference between a trade book and an academic book and I was talking to my publisher about this is that with academic work right you tend to go and talk about it before you've written it because it's a bit um 
normally when you give a conference paper, you're not supposed to say at the beginning, oh, well, actually, you know, this has already been published as an article. People like to think that the questions they're giving you after that conference paper and the conversations you're having are helping to like shape your views on it and that you know it's a bit it's not really done right to turn up and just be like well I've already published it so I don't really care what you people think um but with trade stuff you don't do any talking about it until it comes out because your publisher wants to sell books off all of your events right so they don't care about you going and giving a talk like two months before it comes out they want you to go and promote it afterwards it's such a different landscape but it is actually really enjoyable to be able to talk about something you've done um it's just obviously horrific because my kind of ideal scenario is that I write things and then nobody ever reads it or mentions it again to me and we all just move on quietly. So it's 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 like grimly unpleasant for me to have to continuously look at the book that I wrote. But apart from that, you know, it's, it's fun to actually be able to kind of wallow in it a bit. Whereas I think with academic publishing, sometimes you just immediately move on to the next thing. You know, you get your, you finish your big grant and you immediately write your next big grant application or whatever. And you don't really get to ever sit down and be like, yeah, I did something that was cool. Um, in terms of kind of writing, the next thing I'm going to write, hopefully, is a, a kind of longish essay um, about feelings about guilt and shame and empire. So the way that not just this book has been received, but the way that people have understood books, are, you know, the recent kind of move towards um, scholarship, which tries to unpick our relationship to empire and the way that this has often been received in quite hostile ways by people particular, specifically with the idea that like, we're trying to make people feel guilty, or we're trying to make people feel shame. And I want to think critically about what that, why that emotion is so difficult, or why that's an emotion that some people really feel hostile towards, or or even like why they think that's what we're trying to do. I don't want people to read my book and feel shame, you know, or feel guilty themselves about things. Um, but that seems to be the way that people think we want people to feel so I, I want to kind of interrogate that a bit more that's the next thing I'm going to do